0: You know, five years ago, Jeremy Corbyn brought Palestine solidarity politics into the heart of the largest by membership left wing party in Europe. And it's ended with basically criticisms of the of the occupation kind of being untenable in British politics.
1: Welcome to Unsettled, a podcast about Israel, Palestine and the Jewish diaspora. My name is Max Friedman, and this is an episode about British politics. I have to say, I never paid all that much attention to British politics until 2015. That's when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party. Here's what you need to know about Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn was a left-wing member of Parliament who spent 30 years on the margins of his own party. He was a socialist anti-imperialist during the rise of Tony Blair, roughly speaking the Bill Clinton of the UK, who took the Labour Party in an enthusiastically centrist and capitalist direction in the 1990s. So when Corbyn was elected to party leadership in 2015, it was a big deal. From an American perspective, it felt a lot like the sudden and unlikely viability of Bernie Sanders, another sort of fringe left-wing politician who had been around for decades waiting for his moment. But Corbyn and his supporters were quickly inundated with accusations of anti-Semitism in their past statements and on social media. The charge of anti-Semitism was inextricable from Corbyn's longtime vocal support for the Palestinian solidarity movement. But Corbyn was under fire not just from the Conservative Party, but from many members of Labour. And when Corbyn struggled to offer proper public apologies, or even suggested that the scope of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was being exaggerated by his opponents for political gain, that only seemed to make matters worse. Getting this in drips and drabs from across the Atlantic, I didn't really know what to think. As someone who identifies with the left, my instinct was to defend Corbyn. As a Jew? my feelings were a little more complicated. Was anti-Semitism simply being instrumentalized to take down Corbyn and uphold the status quo? Or is anti-Semitism endemic in the British left? What was really going on over there? At the end of 2019, Labour lost a disastrous national election to the Conservatives, and Corbyn finally stepped aside. And even that wasn't the end of it. In the fall of 2020, he was temporarily suspended from his own party. And then, a few weeks ago, Jewish Currents published what I thought was a pretty comprehensive account of all this, called The Tragedy of Jeremy Corbyn, written by assistant editor Joshua Leifer. I learned so much from this piece, I really wanted to talk to Josh for Unsettled. And I know I said this was an episode about British politics, but of course I really wanted to talk to Josh about what this story has to say about American politics. And we'll get there. But first, I started by asking Josh to explain just how Corbyn won the leadership of the Labour Party in the first place. He said that the same set of circumstances that allowed him to win that party election also made it almost inevitable that his leadership would be met with incredible resistance.
0: Every year, someone from the left side of the party would kind of run for leadership. They would always lose. Uh, It was, in 2015, it was basically Corbyn's turn to, to give it a chance. And he ended up winning. Uh, partially because of a rule change that had happened that made it easy to become a Labour Party member. For a long time, who was the leader of the party was determined by a complicated calculus that like the unions had a share a share of the vote that went in um, to like protect their interests within the party. And under Corbyn's predecessor, Ed Miliband, there was a rule change where it became one person, one vote to vote for the leader. And the Labour Party's membership chose Jeremy Corbyn. Um, And what this meant for Labour was that a guy who had been on the really far left fringes of his own party uh, ended up leading a party where he had almost no ideological supporters within the ranks of the party bureaucracy itself. The membership, like the rank and file had voted for him, but like of Labor Party parliamentarians, there were actually very few people who supported his agenda because most of them were either had been, had come to politics in the Blair years or um, shortly thereafter. Uh, and and right from the get-go, there was this conflict between Corbyn, who had very clear left-wing positions, and the rest of his party, which basically did not share those positions. And that's kind of the genesis of, in Britain, they call this the factional conflict within the Labor Party. And I think something that... Uh, I don't want to play into right-wing rhetoric about the left, but I mean, the other part of the Corbyn story is that people who had been Labour Party members, but had left for whatever reason, maybe it was ideological during the during the Blair years, came back. And there were kind of two tiers of the Corbyn project in terms of age demographics. You had old kind of boomer leftists um, who uh were very uncompromising in their in their politics and who maybe hadn't quite adjusted to the way the, the tenor of political just politics the way it's conducted and then also kind of younger um millennial socialists sort of Bernie equivalent movement people. And I think if you read what a lot of the people who were identified with the older segment of of, of Corbyn supporters, it they were how do I put this? Years of being in the political wilderness can make you very rigid and can make you, you very unreceptive to criticism. And I think that's also part of where, where it begins, I guess, the, this, the, the story. So
1: correct me if I'm wrong, British Jews are an even smaller minority in the UK than American Jews are in the US. Yeah, there are. Yes. So how did the story of how did anti-Semitism become this kind of overriding dominant narrative in uh, the years of Corbyn's leadership of the party?
0: There are very few British Jews. Um, There are more Jews in the borough of Brooklyn alone than there are in all of England and Wales. It's a it's a more religiously observant community, more traditional community, also more politically conservative community. And the the how Jews ended up being at the center of British politics is really like part of the the question of of what what happened. I think one thing to be cautious of is it felt like that maybe for those of us who are Jewish or who were following it very closely, but it was part of a the 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 way that the accusations of anti-Semitism um, were brandished by some of Corbyn's critics was part of a much broader campaign against him. I mean, there were other criticisms, and in fact, when I some of the people I spoke to would say, "It's not like there were voters in rural areas in Britain who." looked at the news and said, Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitism, I can't vote for him. There were other, there are ways that the accusations of anti-Semitism played into existing discourses, Islamophobia being one of the major ones um, that enabled Corbyn's opponents to portray him as um, a terrorist sympathizer, as hostile to Britain and British interests and British empire. In addition to supporting the Palestinian liberation struggle, he was supportive of Irish Republicanism. And that arguably. Those are related in the kind of public consciousness, that kind of chain of, of equivalence, roughly. And so by raising one, you would sometimes raise the other, even if you didn't have to mention it. And it's my understanding from people that, at least in an expressed way, um, Corbyn's perceived sympathy for the Irish Republicans was much more of a thing that you would hear when you were canvassing voters in areas. It wasn't hard for the British media um, which is very conservative and mo- dominated by tabloids, uh, to pick up on uh, a perception that Corbyn was disloyal to the country and had been supportive of terrorist groups. And that was just part of the messaging that was coming out against him at the time. And the the instances of anti Semitism uh, that were raised were very related to this, especially in the beginning. So, the, this issue of Corbin laying a wreath at um, the grave sites of PLO martyrs, or him referring to members of Hamas and Hezbollah as friends ahead of a parliamentary meeting uh, with them. It was this kind of thing that sort of where it began. Um, but in parallel to that, you also had just sort of what was happening in the party itself.
1: So did this start? Did this start immediately? Like as soon as he won the leadership of the party, like people started coming for him specifically for this for the anti-Semitism accusation.
0: Um, yeah, you know, there are people who there is a va- and maybe it's organized, maybe it's not of um, journalists, muck breakers, concerned citizens, but also, you know, um, Israel advocacy activists who spend a lot of time trying to find incriminating speeches, comments, appearances of politicians, uh, spoken out on the issue of Palestine. And that is how this started. And Corbyn had, by virtue of being a really veteran anti-imperialist activist and anti-war activist and um, a patron of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, which one was the big Palestine pro-Palestine organizations in the UK, he just had a huge record of, of being around. And uh, it was not hard for people who were looking for it to find examples of comments that he had made that um, were damaging you know, there were plenty of them. And some of them from, I will say, from like an engaged journalist perspective, were quite uh, frustrating. One of the catalysts, the kind of pivot points in the public controversy over Corbyn himself, as distinct from the party, was what people call mural gate. It was about this mural by the LA, I think he's LA-based graffiti artist, Mirror One, um, that depicted uh, a set of bankers playing Monopoly on the bowed backs of naked workers. You look at this Um, mural and some of these bankers have um, hooked noses and you know it's there is anti-semitic imagery present in the mural and you think to yourself if I were a politician there's no way I would defend that mural maybe I don't have you know putting on my like deep ignorant (laughs) hat like maybe I don't have the visual um intelligence to register everything in this mural as anti-Semitic, but it certainly is conspiratorial. It's certainly about the Illuminati. It's not something that, it's not an intelligent political critique of like capitalism. Um, but in a Facebook group, Jeremy Corbyn had defended the mural and compared its removal to, um, that of, uh, the Mexican government's attempt to take down, uh, Diego Rivera's painting of, uh, Lenin, which he called, um, Diego Vieira. I mean, he missed. You know, it was a kind of like well-intentioned ignorance. I I, I that was my. This is before
1: uh, he was the leader of the party. Or yeah, is he... this isn't
0: the post itself was from twenty twelve.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, it's it was it was initially things like that. I mean, I think I can say critically that um, he, he Corbyn had a way of talking about people involved in the Palestine and the broader politics of Israel Palestine that I think. One would just not want to do if one were a political leader. I mean, there's a video of him referring to um, the ride Salah, who is uh, the head of the uh, northern Islamist movement um, in Israel and has been accused of uh, various forms of incitement. I mean, he is an Islamist preacher, and he says incendiary things. Uh, That doesn't mean that it's right to censor him or to imprison him or to ban his movement, as Israel has done. Um, But it is to recognize that, like, if you are a left-wing humanist or whatever, like, some of what he's saying is going to kind of clash with what your um, professed uh, principles are. And there's a video of Corbin saying very nice things about Raid Saleh, in an attempt to argue against the UK's having denied Salah a visa to visit. And it's like, I think it's possible to say that, you know, there is a crackdown on Palestine liberation activism without also um, misconstruing what some people actually believe and say.
1: So, how how do you feel? How should I feel about Corbyn and 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 anti-Semitism more broadly in the Labour Party? Is this a real thing, or is this a smokescreen for the the
0: factionalism that you were talking about? I'm trying to find the best way to articulate this. I think two things. I think we have to recognize that two things can be true. The first is that accusations of anti-Semitism, especially uh, in proximity to support for um, the Palestinian Liberation Movement, are Wielded against uh, people often in bad faith. The other is that there is anti Semitism on the left, and it looks different in different places. Um, and it certainly was the case, at least talking to left wing British Jews, that over the years, a kind of conspiratorial left wing anti Semitism was palpable. Um that doesn't mean so if we were if I were British and you were British, the conversation we would be having would be about that it would probably be about like the extent to which anti-Semitism is measurable in the in the British Labour Party. I mean, there have been a ton of there's surveys about you know the Labour Party members' views and compared to uh the conservatives and so the general society. Obviously, like there aren't numerically more anti-Semites in Britain in the Labour Party than there are. In the conservatives, in fact, um, it's the other way around. The antisemitism is correlated with the political right. But I think that kind of, I think that kind of attempt to like pin down empirically, like quantitatively, who is more anti-Semitic is not really productive. Unfortunately, um, and this is an old challenge for the left um, that uh, when you are trying to explain structures of power. Uh, whether it's capitalism or imperialism, uh, it's very easy for people to fall back on simplistic explanations and conspiratorial explanations and anti-Semitism as, you know, August Bebel famously said is the, is the socialism of fools. It's also the anti-imperialism of fools. Um, and I think you've just had a lot of foolish anti-imperialism that was happening. This isn't to justify it at all um, in the labor party uh, where um talk about the Rothschilds or a kind of uncomfortable use of the word Zionist. I mean, I think that it's appropriate to call people who are Zionists, Zionists, but there also is a way that we, it's kind of a thing that's perceptible. And this is why it gets so murky is, you know, when, when does the epithet, like the epithet Zio is certainly an epithet, <laughs> like, is it anti-Semitic? I don't, you know, I think like that's a, that's a semantics of antisemitism that I don't, you know, I think like is complicated. I don't know, really. I think it would depend on, on the, the substance of the speech itself. Um, but, uh, you know, it's certainly present. I think it's, it's funny, we both, you know, had a little early experience in If Not Now. And, I, you know, one of the things that um, I remember from my training when I went through it back a- years ago, was being able to talk to Jewish anti-occupation activists for the first time and say, hey, yeah, we've all experienced a little anti-Semitism in the movement. Like we all know, we've all seen this, we've all experienced it. It doesn't mean it's pervasive. It doesn't mean that the movement is irreconcilably anti-Semitic. It, but it does mean that there is a, there is, we we felt it, we've all seen it. Um and I I don't think like acknowledging that means that you betrayed the left or anything. I think um we have to acknowledge where it appears. And recognize it, and because um, recognizing it is the first way to getting rid of it, um, to teaching people. I think, I think it really, it, honestly, as I went through and looked through the examples of of some of this, a, a lot of it comes down to political education. It's very easy for people who don't know a lot about geopolitics, about Israel-Palestine, about domestic politics to fall into conspiratorial thinking. We're in a period of great conspiratorial thinking across the around the world. Um, and it seemed to me that some of this was a, was an outgrowth of that, especially it's mediated, as it's mediated through social media.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about the differences between the British Jewish community and the American Jewish community and, and what role British Jewish institutions played in this story?
0: Yeah. So... The American Jewish community is unique in many ways. One of the ways that it's unique is that uh, it's quite decentralized. This has been historically a source of a lot of frustration for American policymakers because uh, no one ever knows who speaks for the Jews. In some ways, um, the, where the organization, the Conference of Presidents and um, AIPAC come from is an attempt to kind of get some messaging discipline and coordination among the huge range of Jewish groups that existed in the United States. Because between, I mean, this is what, in the period where most American Jews arrived in the United States between 1880 and roughly 1924, I mean, 2 million plus Jews came from largely Eastern Europe into America. They brought a huge range of political um, views from ultra-orthodoxy to radical socialism and anarchism. And so there were just a lot of organizations. Um, the British Jewish community does not have that diversity at all. It also is much older and much smaller. And there are um, organizations, I mean, there's one organization that is actually recognized by the state as the representative of British Jewry. This is the Board of Deputies of British Jews. And so to in a way that American Jewish organizations can't really do, the Board of British Deputies um, asserts its ability to speak on behalf of British Jews. And it is, of course, uh, also doubles as an Israel advocacy organization. There is another organization that's sort of like the Conference of Presidents called the um, Jewish Leadership Council, the JLC. And those are the organizations that really do liaise with state institutions and um, speak on behalf of Jewish interests. And on the flip side, there is just not a big Jewish left. I mean, there's not there's not a big Jewish, liberal because the community is small, there's just not a big Jewish liberal sphere the way here i mean there's innumerable jewish groups that are or nominally jewish groups that are committed in some way to like civil rights and that are old too i mean the other thing is is just political affiliation is different as well and it depends on how you count uh there are some surveys that sort of show the jewish british jewish community split roughly between labor and conservative but it's pretty clear that at least recently even before corbyn um, most British Jews were voting for the Conservatives. Um, I mean, the other thing that is very hard to get into, but I think is part of the story, is that um, not unlike what is exists in the United States, where um, how do I phrase this? Jewish donors are a big part of the Democratic Party um, establishment, Chaim Saban. I mean, there's a whole list of them. And uh, Nathan Thrall's piece about the politics of BDS that came out a few years ago does a really good job of explaining this. Like of big ticket donors within the Democratic Party, a lot of them are Jewish. This is because there's a strong affiliation with the party and like the values of liberalism and Jewishness that go together. But it's also a centrist Liberalism, um, and it's allied kind of with it's a pro-Israel liberalism to the extent that you can say that one exists. In Britain, the Blairist project was also identified with strong outreach to the Jewish community, and many of Blair's advisors and some of the ardent Blairite uh, politicians um, were were Jewish. And it was there was a certainly a problem of conflation of Blairism and Jewishness within the Labour Party that some Labour left wing activists. Um, misdirected what should have been anti-centrist energy that morphed into anti, I think, that could border on anti-Semitism. I mean, one of the prominent um, uh, people who's on the receiving end of this, I mean, this is what gets into the complexity of of the, of the internal politics. So Luciana Berger was a British MP, and was a member of the Labour Party, it was very close with Tony Blair's son. She uh, was Part and parcel of that kind of political agenda. Um, she also was the person who raised the Mural Gate story about anti Semitism um, to the British press and kind of became one of the faces of um, calling out anti Semitism within the British Labour Party. And she reports to have been on the receiving end of a lot of anti Semitic abuse. I talked to a member, a, le- a Jewish left wing Corbyn supporter, who was like, The reason why we were attacking Luciana Berger wasn't because she was Jewish, it's because she was a Blairite. But like, <laughs> There, It's not hard to see how that distinction um, blurs in really damaging and dangerous ways if people aren't careful um, and smart about their critique.
1: So to what extent do you hold Corbin and his supporters responsible for what happened to them over the last five years? I mean, it's easy to blame, and, and it seems like correct, to blame a, a concerted um, campaign, both by centrists in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, to take down Corbyn and Corbynites. But it, from reading your piece, it sounds like there's there's blame to go around.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, everyone has agency um, in the story. And I think what was the writing of the piece was very clarifying for me, especially you know in thinking about connections I don't think there are a lot of comparisons actually to be made to the U.S. context because the U.S. is a very different community, very different um, organizational infrastructure. Um, but I think there is a tendency on the left um, to decry the unfairness and to use the that unfairness as the end uh, that is the substance of the of of our politics that. We're being attacked by the right. These accusations of anti-Semitism are being in- instrumentalized by bad faith actors to smear us. Um, the press is hostile to us. The the powers that be have come to attack us. And I think that has to be the starting point for left-wing politics, not the end point for left-wing politics. If you actually believe that a you know a robust, Ambitious socialist politics of the kind that Corbyn represented poses a threat to the status quo. You have to be prepared that the defenders of the status quo are going to come at you with every single thing they possibly can, which means that um, there isn't a margin for error. You can't base your politics off on being and claiming that you're being victimized by the powers that be. That's the starting point. The starting point is that you're going to be attacked, smeared, um, and marginalized if you challenge the status quo. And I think there's not enough thinking on the left about. Uh, how do we find candidates and um, run them and campaign in such a way that there aren't unforced errors, that the left doesn't give uh, ammunition to the right uh, for free? Uh, I, I think it's a matter of ethics. It's also like, is our analysis good? Do we actually understand how power functions in society? Do we actually understand why things happen? But part of it is also strategic, which is the left doesn't have to make or shouldn't make the rights job easier uh, by being irresponsible in how it articulates its critique, whether it's of imperialism or or, or capitalism. I mean, I think one of the, the, the closest parallels to this is sort of remarks that Ilhan Omar made. And my my feeling was like, I didn't think Ilhan Omar's tweet back in 2018 about, all it's all about the Benjamins, was anti-Semitic. But did I think that like, is this the best tactical decision you want to make if you want to make a, a directed critique of the power that the Israel advocacy uh, world wields in American politics? Probably not, (laughs) you know? And I think that there isn't enough strategic assessment. There's not enough thinking about what is the purpose of the intervention I'm about to make in this area? What do I hope to gain from like causing a public controversy? What you see on the left is a lot of politics of basically of an affect where this feels bad. I don't like this. I'm going to express myself in a particular way because it feels good to make this kind of critique. Um, And I think that ends up uh, setting back the left in a lot of ways.
1: So where are things at now in December of 2020? Um, and and uh, as you point out, it, what are the consequences for the Palestinian
0: Solidarity Project in the UK? The current leadership of the party, Keir Starmer, and who is the new party leader, have been suspending and expelling a lot of Corbyn supporters um, or people who they claim are downplaying the extent of anti-Semitism in the party. It's clear that this is in a large extent a a factional purge of those on the left. Uh, There are Jews who are um, being accused of being anti-Semitic or or abetting anti-Semitism. I mean, this is part of the kind of absurdity of what happened is many of the people who made the most trenchant and um, harsh uh, statements about Israel and Zionism, many of them were Jews or Israeli. And there is a way in which this fight within the Labour Party is also a fight among Jews. Like you have Jews who are adamant anti-Zionists and um, they're being accused of being anti-Semites by the British establishment. It's a little absurd. I mean, not unfamiliar, but it's absurd. And, and this is some of what's happening. Um, I think that the end result of this has been severe damage to the Palestine solidarity uh, movement in the UK. I think that there is now no longer much of a public appetite for criticism of Israeli policy. There's not a lot of tolerance for it. The Labour Party does not want to have to deal with this again. And um, even members of sort of the moderate segments of the party who have spoken out on, say, labeling West Bank settlement products as from the settlements have come under fire uh, for for doing that. So I think the end result is that in you know five years ago, Jeremy Corbyn brought. Palestine solidarity politics into the heart of the large the largest by-membership left-wing center left left-wing party in Europe. And it's ended with basically criticisms of the of the occupation kind of being untenable in British politics. That's part of the tragedy of this, I think, is that it it has ended with such a, a defeat. I don't think that means that forever it's going to be like this. And I think um the reality of uh the occupation in Israel-Palestine means that if you go and encounter it, like it's still there. I think eventually the pendulum may swing back, but at least for the foreseeable future, there's just a high political cost to be paid by speaking out on this.
1: You already said that you don't you you don't think there's that many comparisons to be made with the with the U.S. But what if not comparisons, at least what lessons do you think we should draw from the the tragedy of Jeremy Corbyn uh, in American politics?
0: The first lesson is a practical one, which is um, and and you see groups already doing doing this to get out ahead of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Can you explain what that is? So the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism uh, has a long, complicated history. It was not initially intended to be used as something that was part of legislation. But Israel advocacy groups, as of late, have been pushing this definition to be adopted around the world by governments, parties, institutions. It's, it, uh, it's a problematic definition, not necessarily because of the definition itself, but because of the appended examples, which are worded in a strange and convoluted way, and which are intentionally vague enough to allow for the conflation of harsh criticism of Israel to be designated by state governments as a form of anti-Jewish bigotry. So one of the examples of the 11 IHRA examples is, um, you can't call Israel a racist endeavor, but that's anti-Semitism. And this has rightfully alarmed a lot of uh, advocates for Palestinian rights because you look at what's happening in Israel from whether it's the nation state law or just the occupation itself. I don't think it's crazy to call what's happening there racist in some sense. Um, And I think most people recognize that, but that kind of language is being um, not just deemed illegitimate, but actually, like in some senses, criminalized or, or considered a form of discrimination. I mean, the, this is this is what Trump's executive order did actually um, back in January of last year, when the Education Department adopted um, this definition of anti-Semitism, uh, so that you could be accused of um, illegal discrimination against Jews in a classroom, say, by calling Israel a racist endeavor the Jewish Federation of North America has made uh, issued its like list of priorities for the upcoming year. And one of them is legislating the IHRA. It's a little vague. We're, Jewish currents is going to have a piece about this soon, um, but it will have very damaging effects on Palestine rights advocacy in in the U S if it's adopted um, largely. I mean, it's already in the process of being adopted there are a few Jewish groups that have come out in opposition to it. So Americans for Peace Now, I think it was last week, said this is a bad definition of anti-Semitism. It it, it makes a lot of really important human rights advocacy uh, impossible. I think it's imperative that um, Jewish anti-occupation groups and the left broadly find a way to come out against this definition while also recognizing the importance of fighting uh, anti-Semitism and but that this these examples are really bad and but uh, basically frame the defense of Jewish interests not only as um, like equivalent to the interests of the state of Israel but also basically criminalizes the Palestinian narrative like to talk about the Nakba is now a kind of form of anti-Semitism itself according to this definition. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I think the other thing is being really sharp about. Um, what exactly our critiques of Israeli policy are, what exactly we want to gain by critiquing Israel and 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 the occupation. I think there's not enough attention and not enough precision oftentimes in the way the left talks about Israel-Palestine. I, think, I don't think it's hard to like get up to speed, but it is just true that there are a lot of people who have strong views about this on the left who don't necessarily have the knowledge to make a really well-worded critique. and. Um, the stakes are high. I also think that um, there's an idea, and you see this on the left, there's something called like Jewish interests or, or what's good for the Jews. But I actually don't think that's a useful way uh, of talking. I think we want, we need to recognize different, the Jewish community is extremely diverse. It is extremely ideologically uh, varied. And for a lot of people, Jewish interests are the Israeli state as a regional like hegemonic power. Preserving the occupation, like quashing criticism of Israel, uh, I think it's important to say like that is not that is not the in the interest of all Jews. It's not what all Jews believe. But I also think it's not intellectually honest to say that it's the interest of all Jews to say um, act in solidarity with all oppressed peoples. Like there are a lot of Jews who are invested in whiteness or in capitalism who don't want to be allies in those struggles. It
1: sounds like what you're saying is that. Um and i i'm familiar with the the discourse that you're you're describing this idea that like essentially some jews have it wrong like the jews who support the state of israel um and who who's whose idea of investment in the jewish community is investment in the state of israel like they're wrong about what's good for jews like you're saying that, that that's the thing that is not particularly
0: useful i think it's just a losing i think it's a losing argument i think the better argument is that there is not a unified Jewish interest. We also have to recognize, like, from the left-wing perspective, the right has the upper hand in all of this. And, we, and there are ways that left-wing discourse can inadvertently bolster the right's claims. And, and speaking on behalf of all Jews is one that I think always redounds to the right because they will always be able to claim um, to be more, at least for the time being, to be more authentic, to be more representative. They have institutional backing, they have the means um, It will never be convincing of a group, a very small group of left wing Jews to be like, we speak on behalf of the Jewish community, because that actually isn't necessarily true. Uh, And then people have like, can can recognize that that's not true. Um, And that doesn't mean that we're wrong or the left's analysis uh, or our idea of what a just world is, is wrong. But it means that it's not shared by a lot of the people who are broadly part of um, our families or communities.
1: Well, that actually ties really directly into the last question that I wanted to ask, which is... um you know, this is a, this is a interview about a tragedy. Your piece is called the tragedy of Jeremy Corbyn, but I, if possible, I'd like to end on a more positive note. And I think the, do you think that the American Jewish left is better positioned to throw a wrench in the gears of the possible Corbynization of American politics than the British Jewish community? Uh, And if so, how?
0: Yeah, I think we are. I think they're, one of the structural advantages that American Jews have is that identification with the Democrats is really, really strong. Um, and Jews participate, most Jews participate in politics within the broad sphere of democratic politics. Um, and there isn't this risk of kind of like mass defection from the party. Um, so that's, a. I mean, that's, that's one big difference. There's a big organized. I mean, big, there is a bigger Jewish organized Jewish left in the United States. It's really present on college campuses. It's present in all sorts of Jewish institutions in a way that I don't think it was in Britain. There is already cracks in the Jewish organizational um, consensus. I mean, Americans for Peace Now is part of the Conference of Presidents. And so for them to come out early in opposition to the IHRA is a big deal. I think it'll have to just be more. And I think that Jewish liberal groups will have to be unafraid to come into conflict with more conservative organizations. Uh, I think it's possible. I think they can be pushed. I think it'll just require organizing, you know, in the sense that there are a lot of Jews who support Palestinian rights, who oppose the occupation, and making that that's just a feature, making that an undeniable feature of the American Jewish political landscape. At the same time, I think if I if I were like a extremely wealthy Jewish donor on the left, I would invest a ton of money in political education about the occupation um, for Democrats so that they know how to talk about it, so that they're familiar with terms, so that they know um, who's the kind of person that you will for sure get in trouble for talking about regardless, who's the kind of person that you can take a risk on talking to, uh, who are your go-to sources for um news about what's happening in Israel Palestine. Just to be informed because I think for those of us who spend all our day or significant substantial portions of our day thinking about like Israel Palestine, we it's easy to forget that um most people don't do that especially non-Jews. They don't know they don't have the textured knowledge of what politics are like over there or what the politics of the issue are here. And um I think a lot can be solved by I know it's a, a cliche thing to end on political education, but like that would be the thing that I would in and also having strategic goals in mind, you know, if 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 conditional aid is going to be the thing that you want to do, like then you know there's I think there might be an opportunity to push the Biden administration, especially if Netanyahu um, continues to be in power, which who knows? Um, and settlements uh, continue to be built, uh, that will remain an avenue, um, and that's a good way to go on the offensive and actually dictate the terms of the debate rather than having the right dictate the terms of the debate through um, constantly attacking the left over anti-Semitism.
1: Unsettled is produced by Emily Bell, Asaf Calderon, Alana Levinson, and me, Max Friedman. Original music by Nat Rosenzweig, additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Check out the show notes for a link to Joshua Leifer's article, The Tragedy of Jeremy Corbyn, as well as other articles and books he talked about in our interview. We'll be back with more new episodes in 2021. In the meantime, if you forgot to send us a Hanukkah gift, it's not too late. You can leave a rating and especially a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll only take a minute, but will really help other people find the show. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And most importantly, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So you never miss an episode of Unsettled.